Chapter Nine of Wanted, A Husband. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. While life and the lust of lovely things remain to Darcy Cole, she will not forget the thrilling experience of that day and other shopping days to follow. When it was all over, she possessed item a dark blue serge business suit cut with a severity of line which on a less graciously girlish figure would have been grim with a small trim expensive hat and the smartest of tan shoes and tan gloves clad in that darcy suggested a demure and businesslike bluebird item a black and white small checkered suit with just a little more latitude of character to it and to go with this black patent leather shoes from the best shop in town, and a black sailor hat with a flash of white feather in it. In that, Darcy resembled a white-breasted chat, which is perhaps the very most correct and smartest bird that flies. Item. Several items, in fact. Wonderful but unobvious garments, conjured by the magic touch of Gloria from the purchase of a whole bolt of white filmy crepe de shine and several holts of baby blue ribbon together with well-chosen odds and ends of laces no less wonderful but much more visible negligees with long lustrous rhythmical lines devised by the same gloria from the bargain purchase of an odd lot of pink crepe de shine arrayed in which darcy was able to give herself a very fair imitation of a complacent though pale flamingo item an evening gown of shimmering silver and blue, carried out in the curve of the daintiest of silk stockings to the tip of fairy-gift silver slippers, and over it a blue velvet wrap lined and trimmed with an old chinchilla coat which sensible auntie had given her several years before, wherein Darcy felt like some winged and shining thing come down from a moonlit cloud. That was the end of eight hundred of Aunt Sarah's hard, round, beautiful dollars. But not of the whole wonderful trip to Closeland, for, at the last, Gloria produced the most stunning of traveling coats, dark blue cheviot, with a quaint little cape, the whole lined with silken gray, a gray with a touch of undercolor to match the blue warmth behind the gray of Darcy's eyes. "'For your wedding present, my dear,' explained Gloria, mischievously. And when the girl wept for sheer delight, her mentor abused her and called her Amanda, and threatened her with dreadful reprisals unless she at once dried her eyes, so that account could be duly taken of her. Of that stock-taking, Gloria, recreatrix, made no report to the subject, but this is what her gratified eyes saw. A girl who held herself straight like an Indian, and at ease like an animal. Where there had been sallow cheeks and an unwholesome flabbiness, the blood now shone in living pink through the lucent skin. The eyes were twice as large as when, the year before, Darcy had set out upon her determined beauty quest, but that was because the sagging lines beneath had disappeared, and the eyes themselves, deep gray against clear white, were softly brilliant with health. Above the broad, smooth, candid forehead, the hair, so deep brown as to be almost black, played the happy truant in little waves and whirls as delicate and errant as blown smoke. The chin was set and firm. That was Andy Dunn's discipline of soul and body. 
Above it, the mouth smiled as naturally and unconsciously as it had formerly drooped, and two little dimples had come to live in the comers. Beyond and above the sheer formative change in the girl, she was so pulsating, so palpitant with life, that even as she stood quiescent before Gloria's appraising eyes, she seemed to sway to some ill-palpable rhythm of the blood. Yet Gloria was not wholly content. Hers was a wisdom that went deep. The recreated Darcy was a notable triumph, to be sure. Looking upon her handiwork, Gloria found it good, nor did she doubt that others would find it good. But what of Darcy's own bearing toward all these changes? Had she found herself? Until that question was settled in the affirmative, Gloria, recreatix, would not be satisfied. Just the same, I'd like to see Jack Rimson, or any other man, look at her as she is now, once without looking twice. Gloria challenged the masculine world on behalf of her candidate for troubles and honors in the great open lists. Not men alone, but women as well, became addicted to that second look when Darcy passed their way in her new feathers. To her housemates, the change, now forced upon their reluctant acceptance, was a matter of bewilderment, if not of actual perturbation. Halcombe Lee, justified of his prophecies, exulted over the fact to so much a point that Maud Raines felt it her womanly duty to fix a quarrel upon him. Undismayed, Halcombe took Darcy out to dinner. "'Never, never, never in the world would I have accepted, Gloria,' that dangerous young person assured her mentor. "'If Maud Raines hadn't been so catty and sneery about Halcombe's drawing me.' And Miss Raines hastily drowned her trumped-up grievance in a flood of alarmed tears. Even matter-of-fact Paul Wood, Helen's betrothed, was impressed to the point of admiring comment. "'That chrysalis has hatched for fair,' said he. "'Hatched?' retorted Helen. "'It didn't hatch. It exploded.' She and Maud wished to know, not without asperity, first why Darcy was getting her trousseau in advance of the season, next why she was wearing it, item by item. Darcy was wearing the unaccustomed finery for a perfectly sound and feminine reason, which she did not feel called upon to expound for the enlightenment of the two fiancés. She felt taller, straighter, and more independent in it. Moreover, she found it a business asset. Palpably affected by the richness and variety of her wardrobe, B. Regal had preferred a guarantee basis of work which assured her future income. Thus the clothes bade fair to pay for themselves. But on alternate afternoons, Darcy, faithful to her training, garbed herself in rusty sweater, short skirt, and shapeless shoes, and did her stunt through Central Park. Her term at Andy's Academy having expired, she had taken on a new schedule of two hours per week, that being all, her preceptor assured her, that was needed for the preservation of her fitness, to jump into the ring and put him up with the big feller himself at the clang of a bell. A slight exaggeration, but to Darcy, a grateful one. With ever-growing approval, Gloria saw the girl accomplish that distinctively feminine feat known as settling into your clothes. "'My dear,' she remarked one day when the two had come in from a walk, "'if Monty Vesey could see us together now.' 
I wouldn't have a chance with him. Darcy grabbed and hugged her. You're talking nonsense and you know it. No man in the world would look at me if you were in the same block. Wouldn't they? retorted the actress ungrammatically. I'd hate to put it to the test of a regular constituted jury. I'd have to bar Mr. Remsen from the jury box, smiled Darcy. Have you seen Jack again? Ran into him, plop, on Fifth Avenue yesterday. Were you in your best bib and tucker? The black and white check. Did he look through you? asked the actress. Not exactly. Did he look past you? asked the actress. No. Well, did he look at you? she persisted. Yes, but he didn't know me. I'm sure he didn't, chuckled Gloria. Didn't you bow to him? she added. Next time you meet a nice young man like Jack Remsen, you march straight up to him and take him by the beard. He hasn't got a beard, metaphorically speaking, and ask him if he isn't ashamed of himself for not remembering you. He will be. Oh, never fear. He will be. Darcy pursed her red lips up to a funny little assumption of prudery. He'd think me a forward young hussy. Let him. You've been backward long enough. I, I, I haven't really got used to... "'To the new feeling yet,' said the girl, shyly. "'To being pretty, say it out. "'It's easy enough to get used to. "'Just feel as pretty as you look. "'Go on a perpetual parade "'until you learn the right kind of self-consciousness. "'Being a woman is an asset, "'not a liability in life. "'When you've absorbed that powerful truth, "'come to me and I'll impart some more wisdom.' "'She fell into thought.' "'Darcy,' she said, portentously. "'Well?' "'I've got a grand and glorious idea for a grand and glorious feeling, like Mr. Briggs. "'Don't keep me waiting. I can't stand suspense. "'I'm going to give a party for you, with the brides for side dishes, "'but principally to celebrate your graduation.' "'Oh, joy!' cried Darcy. Joy proved to be a mild and inexpressive word for the party. So far as Miss Darcy Cole was concerned, it was a triumph. The two brides, each sufficiently attractive in her own type, simply paled away before their unconsidered flatmate. Gloria didn't pale away. No rivalry could shadow her superb individuality. With her guest of honor, she shared the laurels of a victorious evening. Stimulated to her best self by the realization of success, conscious of a buoyant body, perfectly clad and a soaring spirit, Darcy unwittingly took and held the center of the stage, into which Gloria cunningly and unobtrusively maneuvered her. At the end of the long night of fun, Miss Cole sat enthroned. Miss Cole had sung like a lark. Miss Cole had danced like an elf. Miss Cole had laughed like a spirit of mirth. Miss Cole had fairly radiated a wholesome, keen, full-blooded, high-spirited gaiety and happiness shot through with that indefinable glow of womanhood, which is as mysterious and unmistakable as the firefly's light, and perhaps as unconsciously purposeful. 
One thing only detracted from Gloria Greene's satisfaction in the triumph of her protégé. Jack Rimson had not been a witness to it. Mr. Rimson was in retirement. "'I do want you and Jack to like each other,' said Gloria to Darcy, in the inevitable talk-over which followed the grand triumphal party. "'Of course,' returned the girl softly and warmly, regarding her friend. "'And of course I'm going to like him just as hard as ever I can, if he'll let me. "'For your sake,' was the implication of that warmth, which would have considerably astonished Gloria had she appreciated it. But how should she know the interpretation given by the girl to that casual kiss overseen in the studio? Gloria's mind was running in quite a different direction. Sequels to the party and to Darcy's success were promptly manifested in the form of sundry boxes and parcels bearing fashionable trade insignia, which flowed in upon Bachelor Girls Hall. But not for Miss Raines or Miss Barrett. Out of her sumptuous surplus, Miss Cole was pleased to present a dozen American Beauty roses to Miss Raines and a five-pound box of special candies to Miss Barrett, explaining kindly that she could not possibly use them herself. That was the glory-crowned summit of a delicate revenge, long overdue. Poor Darcy, indeed! So Darcy came into her own. One year Gloria had given her. The year had not yet gone, but most of Aunt Sarah's gift had. Who cared? Not Darcy. She had won her heritage of womanhood, where, a few brief months before, and she could laugh now at the pangs and hardships of those months which were so small a price to pay for the results. She had looked a worn thirty years old and felt like a sapless leaf. She now looked a budding twenty and felt like a baby with a drum. Life was her drum. All its stirring rataplan, however, could not quite drown out the grim voice of reckoning, which spoke with the accent of Sir Montrose Vesey Bart of Vesey Holdings, Hampshire, England. End of chapter 9